0: Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 55. Glad to be back on the program with you. I uh, just want to remind you if you like this podcast, uh, please share it around. Uh, Please like me on uh, Facebook and follow me on Twitter and YouTube and all the social media. I'd appreciate your support. Uh, The only way we're going to continue to get the word out is for good people like you to go out there and uh, make that happen by sharing this stuff around on social media. So uh, I would be honored if you would do that for me. I can do some of it myself, but um, growing uh, an audience requires a little bit of uh, word of mouth as well. So um, please uh, get out there and... And pound the pavement, so to speak, and uh, let people know you like the Brian McClanahan Show. I also had a fan the other day uh, contact me and uh, say that his uh, one of his daughters met me at a conference I attended, and the other daughter didn't. So uh, I'd like to uh, uh, tell the other daughter, I think uh, that one was uh, Elizabeth. Hello. So uh, this is um, uh, so now you, you've, you've met me through the podcast. So um, thanks for listening, and um, again, please. Uh, Please spread the word. So uh, today I'm going to talk about an issue I think that's uh, you know in the forefront of the news, uh, and it has to do with Donald Trump and his immigration executive orders. So there's two different ways I could look at doing this particular uh, issue. I could do it um, tackling the issue of executive orders, or I could do it also looking at the uh, issue of immigration. And so I decided to do immigration first. At some point I'm going to talk about executive orders, but, of course, I, I did a lot of that in my nine presidents who screwed up America and four who tried to save her. So um, I'd rather do the the immigration issue first. I think that this is something that um, is the issue of the 21st century in many ways moving forward uh, and how we're going to wrestle with uh, large numbers of of people coming into the United States and how to do it uh Constitutionally, one, one, one thing, and uh, also how to fight back against some of these uh, leftist charges uh, that are uh, hurled against the administration and against uh, the uh, people who believe in immigration reform. Now, uh, trying to uh, curtail immigration to the United States is nothing new, as I'll talk about. Historically, this has gone on really since uh, there was the United States. So first, let's let's tackle one of the uh, falsehoods of American history, and that is we're a quote unquote nation of immigrants. So first, let's take this into pieces. So we're going we're going to look at the first part. The United States is a nation. Well, this is simply not true. Uh, it never has been true. Now, even the founding generation used this language at times. You know, an, an, a nation, an American people. Uh, there were people who did that. But overall, that particular idea was rejected over and over and over again in the founding generation. So, the United States is not a nation. Uh, It's a union of states. It's a federal republic. And in in those states, you had, even at the beginning, the, the founding, you had 13 individual republics. And certain parts of the United States had similar attributes in terms of culture. Uh, so if you look at states like Massachusetts, Connecticut, and uh, New Hampshire, all three of those particular states had a general culture um, that was completely alien in, in many ways to the culture of the other regions of, of uh, British North America. Rhode Island was also similar, but, and Maine, I mean, eventually Maine becomes a state in 1820. Uh, but their culture was even a little different than that of Massachusetts. Rhode Island would not have been formed unless Roger Williams had been booted out of Massachusetts and excommunicated uh, and then uh, petitioned to form his own colony. And so people in Rhode Island and people in Maine, uh, Maine was founded by uh, John Wheelwright, who was also the founder of New Hampshire, but he was booted out of New Hampshire because he and John Winthrop did not get along. So uh, these two, those two particular states are a little different. Rhode Island's always been very independent. In fact, it was the last state to ratify the Constitution. And they didn't send any delegates to the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. So, but you generally had a political culture and, uh, and a, an overall culture in, in Massachusetts. Massachusetts was the hub of New England. Uh, that was uh, drastically different from that, which you would find just even a little bit further south. So you had one particular region there, a Puritan culture. And then you go a little south into New York. And New York was founded by uh, the Dutch first. And so that particular culture of New York, all along the Hudson River, the patroon ships that were there, it was um, very much different from what you would find in Puritan, Massachusetts. Uh, in terms of of religion, it might have been a little more similar than what you would have in in the South in particular, uh, the Dutch being Protestants. But um, you would uh, you would find that these patroons were much more like Southerners, at least in the way that they uh, wanted to uh, handle their uh, social and economic affairs. Uh, These patroons were, uh, patroon ships were large estates all along the Hudson River. And essentially, if you were a patroon, you were the master of your own domain, meaning that you basically set every rule you could for your particular estate. There was the law of the manor, essentially, on these patroon ships. So New York was different from Massachusetts. Now, Massachusetts did have a a fairly strong commitment to um, local constitutions. Uh, You could have variations within the the towns in Massachusetts compared to the overall uh, legal authority of Massachusetts. But still, you had different cultures in New York and in uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire. Uh, This is actually why, you know, New York... um, uh, when you get to the 1860s there was some discussion primarily because of economics about New York City seceding from New York State and uh, having an independent New York City because uh, they were being harmed by the by the war you know, the, the southern states had long been propping up in many ways the New York City economy uh, through shipping and the trade of cotton so uh, there was uh, this this definite uh, you know Difference between New York City and the rest of New York, and also New York and the rest of, of and, and, and New England, I should say, and of course, Vermont breaks free of New York and uh, secedes and forms its own state uh, because Vermont was different from the rest of New York. So uh, you you have this, uh, you have these cultural clashes going on, in order to have a nation, a nation is a is a people with a similar language, uh, you know, religion, uh, cultural background. Uh, you could say that they all had the same language. They didn't all share the, share the same religion, though, and definitely didn't have all the same uh, political culture or even uh, culture in, in many other ways. Uh, even when it comes to language, they all spoke English, but it was a different kind of English in every, in every region of, uh, of British North America. So we never had a nation. Uh, if you look at the rest of the mid-Atlantic states, you look at Pennsylvania, the Quakers dominated Pennsylvania, and Quakers were heavily persecuted by Puritans. Uh, There was no way the Quakers and the Puritans had really ever seen eye to eye on just about anything. The Quakers were much more dedicated to uh, civil liberty than the uh, rest of the uh, Puritans. Uh, They um, shared a little more in common with uh, the Cavaliers and the Celts in that regard than they did with the Puritans. Uh, But um, the Quakers were highly different from the Puritans, and they, of course, dominated uh, Pennsylvania, uh, also... um, uh, Delaware for a time, and even parts of New Jersey. Even though New Jersey, after it uh, became in, uh, became part of the uh, the British Empire after the Peace of Breda in 1664, uh, New Jersey developed in some ways like uh, the Carolinas. They had a constitution very similar to the Carolinas. So, uh, even New Jersey, uh, which uh, uh, you know was part of this Quaker sphere of influence, uh, but you had In New Jersey, uh, even into the 1860s, a a very strong strain of of agrarians, people that believed in in a much more uh, southern style of government. And so New Jersey was even a little different. And then as you move into the southern colonies, you know, Maryland, uh, Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, you see the dominance of the cavalier culture, which uh, was the uh, dominant culture of southern uh, England, uh, you know, places like London. In fact, uh, you know, you look at you look at their language, words like ain't. Uh, that was a word that came out of uh, southern England at one point. Not New England, but South, old England, southern England. Uh, and the southern dialect was very much found in, in places of, of southern England, even into the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, so these cultures, these regions were different. There was no nation there. Political culture was different. Uh, their customs and manners were different. Uh, and so it was very hard. No one really talked about putting together a nation in reality because everyone knew, as Benjamin Franklin recognized in 1754, that all the colonies were too provincial. Jefferson saw them as independent countries when he authored the Declaration. He saw it before that. Uh, even in the time leading up to the uh, American War for Independence, he saw that these areas were different. And so a union was made much more sense, a union of of states, a federal republic. Because putting a, a nation together would have been impossible. You have to have a common culture to do that. And no one thought we had that in the eighteenth century or the seventeenth century in British North America. So what about are all these people immigrants? Well absolutely not. I mean of course you can say that the the first people here, the first people that arrived here, first Europeans uh were uh settling here um, and they had not been here before. But by the time we get to the 18th century and the formation of the United States, these a lot of the people who were doing that were fourth generation, third generation uh, Americans. It's like saying today that if you're if you're born here and your family's been here for several generations, you're somehow an immigrant. You're not. Uh, this is this is your native home. Uh, and so to kind of give you a perspective on this, uh, what we call, uh, for example, the What we know as the English people today, would they be immigrants? Uh, Well, if you look at the history of of England, I mean, the first people there were Celts. And those Celts were then uh, essentially conquered by the Roman Britons. So uh, those Celts would be the native Britons, uh, but the Roman Britons came in and took over. And then, of course, after the Roman Britons, you had the Angles and the Saxons, Germanic raids into uh, England. And nowadays we think of the English people as the Anglo-Saxon people, but these Anglo-Saxon people weren't there. They were Germans smashing in from the continent of Europe. But are they immigrants? No, they are the dominant culture, at least somewhat, because eventually the Angles and the Saxons were conquered by the Normans, and also the Danes were in uh, in parts of um, the British Isles. You know, you had the Dane Law, and you had uh, the the red-haired Irish were not native to Ireland. Uh, they're the Danish peoples who came in and smashed into Ireland. So are they immigrants somehow? Are the Normans immigrants? The Normans, of course, who conquered uh, England in 1066. So all of these things led to a political culture, but we would not say these people are all immigrants. And this is the trend all throughout history. You know, what we call uh, the Greek people, uh, what we say they're immigrants, because uh, eventually the people that we know as, as, uh, as Greeks uh, that was part of what was called the Dorian Invasion at one time. So, I mean, are all these people immigrants? Absolutely not. Uh, but somehow we get stuck on this idea. We're all immigrants here in America. No. We've got, most people now that are involved in in government, and this has long been the case in America, Are uh, have been here for several generations. So they're not immigrants. I wouldn't classify myself as an immigrant. Of course, you know, I can say, well, uh, my my ancestors... Uh, came from different parts of Europe, uh, whether it's the the British Isles, which is where they were domin- predominantly from, or Northern Europe. Uh, I do have, uh, you know, Norman blood in me, uh, you know, or uh, other parts of uh, of uh, Central Europe. Uh, but still, uh, I mean, this is, I am thoroughly an American, uh, and uh, this is where I was born. My, my family's been here for generation upon generation upon generation, uh, even though I could say, well, I mean, I have, uh, you know, uh, Ties and and blood ties back to the old world. I don't fit there. That's not my culture. So to say that we're a nation of immigrants, number one, we're not a nation, and number two, uh, this this is false, completely false. Uh, even if you could say, well, then the the uh, quote unquote Native Americans, which are you know the American Indians, were immigrants as well, because human remains, you know, in, in terms of what we found with archaeological digs. Everyone came here from somewhere else. Even them, I mean, they were coming from from other parts of uh, of the world into the Americas. So uh, this is simply just a leftist falsehood to try to get people to think. Well, I mean, we got to support unlimited immigration. No, we don't. Uh, and um, it's it's a it's a narrative that's completely out of step with. American history, particularly when you look at the political culture of the United States and the political culture of the states. Some of this has been, uh, you know, recently been, been foisted on us by the Hamilton farce, right? So you've got this smash hit Hamilton, which, um, you know, I mentioned in my book, forthcoming book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Uh, and the left has just embraced Alexander Hamilton. He's one of them uh, because he's an immigrant. See, so he comes here, and if you if you listen to the music... Here comes Alexander Hamilton, this great immigrant. He's going to change everything. Uh, in some ways, Hamilton was different there. You know, Hamilton was an American nationalist because he never really had a state that was his home. He didn't have any roots like Jefferson did or Washington did or even the Adams did. Uh, you know, the, he was he was a recent uh, arrival when you get to the 18th century. Uh, but when you look at Jefferson and Washington and Madison and in and the South and, and the Adams in the North or people like Roger Sherman— uh, in the North. I mean, these are people that have been here for a long period of time and had developed attachments to their to their community that went beyond simply this amorphous United States, uh, this American nationalism. Now, some of the times, you know, you had people like John Marshall, uh, who was also attached to Virginia long term, but yet he became an American nationalist. His identity was to America, not to Virginia. But I think overall, if you look at the founding generation more of them were attached to their region or their state than they were, or their local community, than they were to some you know, amorphous United States. So this idea that we're a nation of immigrants is just completely false. Now, I did I did tackle this a little bit in my uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, and so I thought uh, I'd be, you know, you know, that was written in 2009, though, so here we are uh, uh, you know, eight years later, and... Uh, This this myth still persists. Of course, I never was so believed so much in my work that people would read it and say, "Oh yes, it's conclusively proven now we're we're not a nation and we're not a nation of immigrants." But um, I hope that uh, at least that persuaded some people, and maybe this podcast can do the same. So we've got this idea that uh, we're a nation of immigrants. We should not believe in that. But and how this factors into immigration? No region, no throughout history, no people have ever been able to uh, maintain themselves when you have a situation of unlimited immigration. It's never been done. In fact, and I did the podcast, We Are Rome, if you look at the history of Rome, essentially the reason the the Roman Empire fell apart was because of open borders and unlimited immigration into the Roman Empire. It eventually was a catastrophe because they could not maintain their traditional political culture. And I think that's what this comes down to more than anything else. You have to, if you're going to have immigrants into your region, they have to assimilate. They have to assimilate, at least with your political culture. And I would say there is, in some ways, maybe not as much anymore, but for a long time, there was a common political culture in uh, America, and that was a dedication to federalism and a limited central authority. Now, that has changed over time, uh, particularly with the progressive movement. And the progressives are the ones who are really driving this Nation of Immigrants narrative. Uh, and it doesn't matter if they're on the left or the right. In fact, that the progressives need this kind of thing to make their system work. But that has not been the case throughout American history. And I think the dedication, American dedication to federalism was fairly strong, particularly in the 18th century, both North and South, because they saw it as a way to protect their own political culture, their own regional culture. Federalism worked. Because it allowed them to innovate within their states and do in their states what they wanted to do. Nobody wanted in Connecticut, nobody in Connecticut wanted Virginia running Connecticut or South Carolina running Connecticut, and vice versa. Nobody in Virginia or South Carolina wanted Connecticut running their state. So, this dedication to federalism worked for the political culture of those regions and also the overall culture of those regions. And if you can't assimilate people, then you run into problems. Because uh, if these people are going to change your political culture. So this is why when you look at immigration, why it becomes very important to push an assimilation message. And really, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, the, the heyday of the American empire, which would be the 1950s and into the 60s. Well, if you look at that time, uh, immigration was stifled in those periods. Uh, you had some time for America to develop kind of this American nationalism that people liked. I mean, it was rah-rah America. We were great. We were the big boy on the block. We're beating everybody up. And uh, people kind of liked that. Um, you know, we're, we're the number one. We're number one. You know, you think about that. We're Our team is number one. And so you didn't have mass immigration, really, uh, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. The Great Depression stifled a lot of interest in coming to North America from other parts of the world. Uh, if you look at immigration numbers... Uh, you know the charts of immigration you had very little immigration into the United States in the 1930s and '40s. Uh, it started ticking up again in the '50s, but it wasn 't until some Im- immigration reform in the '60s that you started seeing immigration start to spike again, and that 's because the left controlled uh, Congress and they were able to ram through several immigration reform efforts uh, in the '60s from the '60s through the '80s, and now we 've seen an explosion in immigration, uh, and of course, the left has been driving the narrative. But this, uh, you know, the political culture of America in the 30s and 40s and 50s was much different than the political culture of America in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and into the 21st century. So we've had this explosion in immigration. Now the question is, what can the federal government do about it? Now, of course, Trump has issued his executive orders, and people are all going ballistic over this. And uh, you know, this is uh, this is problematic. He's being a dictator, et cetera. There's all these conspiracy theories out there. Uh, the left is going crazy about you know, executive overreach, whereas for, for uh, eight years they didn't really care about their guy with executive overreach. In fact, that was the entire point of nine presidents who screwed up America. This has been an issue since 1789. Uh, the creation of the executive branch was a major disaster for American liberty and, of course, the Federal Republic. Because ultimately, even things that Washington was doing, of course, Hamilton's whispering in his ear and making these things happen, Ultimately, the things, some of the things Washington did set the stage for some of the things that Andrew Jackson did and that Abraham Lincoln did, and then all the progressive presidents of the, of the 20th century into the 21st century. I make the argument in that book that we've had, uh, you know, essentially since 1989, an elected king. I know George H.W. Bush uh, was just as bad when it came to executive abuse as uh, Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or Barack Obama and now Donald Trump. Uh, so my hope, uh, with, and I knew going in that Donald Trump was going to abuse power. It's going to happen because the executive branch has been set up that way now for (laughs) when you look at over time, we've had, um, you know, 28 years of executive abuse since 1989. And now we're just going to have, you know, 29 years. We're going to have another four years of this. And, and, and so the left is so inconsistent. What we need to do is get together and say, you know what? We don't want this happening to either group. We don't want uh, the president to be able to abuse power at all. Now, uh, can the president direct immigration policy? Well, if the Congress passes legislation to that effect, then he's going to do it. Uh, My argument would be, and going back to, say, Jefferson, and if you look back at the founding generation, uh, my argument would be the states have always been able to regulate immigration uh, outside of the purview of the federal government. They've always been able to do this constitutionally. And Jefferson made this case, I think, fairly strongly in the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. He pointed that out. Uh, The states have always been to regulate, been able to regulate, and constitutionally the only power that can really regulate who's within their borders. So uh, the United States government can pass uh, laws of of, uh, naturalization, universal laws of naturalization. That's to become an American citizen. And they did so in 1790. In fact, it was fairly easy to be a citizen, as long as you're of white and good moral character, that was actually the requirements. But the states could regulate immigration into their own borders, and Jefferson made this fairly clear, as I said, in 1798. And I'm going to read you part of the uh, the Kentucky Resolutions uh, that make this uh, they make this very 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 clear. So Jefferson said in the in the second section of these 1798 resolutions. That the Constitution of the United States, having delegated to Congress a power to punish treason, counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the U.S., piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, and offenses against the law of nations, and no other crimes whatsoever. Those are the only things the United States government could punish according to the Constitution. Those are the only laws they could pass that would actually have some type of punitive effect. If people violated these laws, Congress could do something about that. But otherwise... They cannot punish any other crimes. Those are the only crimes enumerated in the Constitution that the Congress has authority over. That's it. And so he uses a Tenth Amendment argument here because he says any other powers are not delegated to the to the uh, uh, government by the Constitution. So they they can't they can't do anything else. And he says in the fourth section, resolved that alien friends are under the jurisdiction and protection of the laws of the state wherein they are. So this gets into the idea of sanctuary cities. Um, you know, Trump cannot force state authorities and local authorities to enforce his immigration laws or his immigration edicts, I should say. He can't do it. The Supreme Court has even said that. And you can't use funds to coerce a state. So in that particular way... Um, Trump can make all the wishes that he wants, but these sanctuary cities um they have the law on their side. Now, there's going to be some battle between these cities and the state the state can actually force the cities to do things because the cities are are creations of the state, but this gets down to the idea I, I think we should even decentralize further. The state should have much more uh, cities should have much more autonomy than they do. Uh, but the states are uh, the are the sovereign power and the cities are mere corporations of the states. So you do have this argument the states could actually coerce the cities to do something. But uh, alien friends, as Jefferson calls them, are under the jurisdiction of the states and the laws therein. And so the states can actually limit immigration if they choose. They can say these people can become citizens and these people cannot according to the original Constitution. This is an argument Jefferson would have made. If the state of Massachusetts doesn't want to admit Im- people in their border and say that uh, you know you're an illegal alien here, they can do that. And they can say you're no longer welcome here. You have to leave the state. So the states could actually regulate immigration into their states, and they don't have to take uh, refugees from the general government. They can tell the general government, no, I guess you're going to have to keep them on federal, you know, federal property. Um, And so uh, they could, I mean, the general government could say, we're going to put them on a military base in your state, uh, but they couldn't go anywhere else. Uh, They would have to stay on the base. Uh, I mean, so as long as they're on federal property, I guess, they could say, well, you can stay here. Uh, So the states can actually limit this. They can limit uh, immigration if they want to, Uh, and the cities can too. So this is actually Jefferson's argument. I think the state should actually take a stand here. And states that don't want immigrants, states like Texas or uh, Arizona or uh, New Mexico, whatever whether states are, in, in my state of Alabama, there was an attempt to limit immigration into the state of Alabama, and it actually worked. Uh, so the states can do this. Uh, the general government needs to get out of the way. Uh, also, uh, when you look at you know, airports, uh, the states can actually regulate airports. They're within the, the airports are not federal property. So, uh, you know, states can actually regulate who can come in and out of their own airports if they want to. They can make security much stricter than it is in their airports. We, this is not all under the, the guidelines of the federal government. We, we tend to look at the federal government for too many things, uh, and the states could do all of this stuff. So uh, when you look at this immigration issue, number one, I think that limiting immigration is, is uh, essential because you want people to assimilate. Uh, but number two, the states could do more than they do. Uh, and they should. Uh, should Everyone should not just look to the general government to say, hey, general government, bail us out here. We've got a problem with immigration. Do something about it. The state should say, you know what? We're going to do something about it. We're going to restrict immigration. We're going to do things to ensure that the political culture and the overall culture of our region uh, fosters a climate of assimilation. You have to believe in our political culture. Now it doesn't mean that you have to drop everything. I mean, We we like this idea. We can go out to a Mexican restaurant. We can go to a to a Thai uh, uh, a Vietnamese restaurant or a or a, a Chinese restaurant or a Thai restaurant. We like these things. Uh, we like to have uh, you know some some uh, uh, you know diversity in our food choices. For example, um, we like to have uh, you know we like to look at uh, and and learn about different peoples from different parts of the world, and that's great. I mean, I think people should do that. People should be worldly in that way. Uh, but uh, what we also need to to insist upon is that people who come here try to assimilate with our political culture and, and the culture of the region wherein they, they live. Uh, that needs to happen uh, because if they don't, then you create a situation where further down the road, your political culture and the culture of your people can be eroded. And I think that is, uh, that's problematic. Um, so uh, we should be insisting on assimilation. We should be insisting on people become Americans. Uh, and they should not just that, but become Americans within the culture where they reside. And over time, you see that. It does happen. But it does take some time. And so limiting immigration allows uh, assimilation to happen, allows people to be absorbed into the culture of the time. If you just dump. And, and the founding generation said this. Look, George Washington said it very clearly. He was very much against people being dumped, a large number of people being dumped into an area because that would destroy the culture of the region. They could not be assimilated. Washington even made that very clear. I'm fine with people coming in in small numbers to, and over time trickle in because that allowed them to be assimilated. And essentially that's what happened in the North American colonies. You didn't have large amounts of people being dumped in at every one time. Uh, people came in and they assimilated to the culture that was here. Uh, so that's the key to all of this. You can't just have a large group of people, you know, thousands of people dump into an area. It's going to completely change that area. And so we shouldn't want that. We should want welcome people in who are going to assimilate. We're going to teach them how to be good Americans. We're going to teach them about the political culture and the regional culture wherein they reside. And they're going to assimilate with that culture. And that was generally the idea of Im- American immigration uh, all throughout the, the early 19th century, You even had pushback against this. You had the Native American or Know-Nothing Party uh, who were very much against immigration. Uh, You had, uh, you know, long you've had, you've always had, uh, uh, you know, people who were pushing for federal rules against immigration The 20th century. You know, you had uh, pretty strict rules, quotas and other things, uh, literacy tests and all kinds of things to keep certain people out of the United States. Uh, And so... I think that this idea that we've always just opened the doors and let everyone in this is a creation of of the last fifty years. It's a fab, It's a falsehood. It's a it's a fabrication that doesn't that's never jived with history. Uh, Americans have have always been interested in limited immigration and assimilation up until really uh, you get to uh, the the nineteen uh, late nineteen uh, hundreds, the late twentieth century. That's when the narrative began to change. Change, and that's because the left controlled everything, and they simply uh, spewed falsehoods. I mean, this is what it comes down to. So we're not a nation of immigrants. We're not a nation at all. We're a union of federal, uh, a federal republic, a union of federated states. that's what we are. Um, No American nation exists. There is a political culture that needs to be maintained, and there are regional cultures that we try to maintain as well. And by uh, allowing too many people in to dump in at one time, uh, that's going to change that. So, I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.